Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Then Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. But I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've had the uh, song from Hamilton one last time playing in my head all morning. Here we are. One last time. Uh, it is, uh, it's been a great honor and privilege to be with you these last almost 14 months. Um, and I'm going to do my best not to execute an uh, Irish guy. Uh, we're now in the, uh, wow, sorry, I, I, has you, have you heard anything I've said until that point? Uh, this is the third and final uh, 
sermon in this mini sermon series <clears throat> that we entitled Eating with where we are looking at passages. We have been looking at passages in the Gospel of John where a meal is served. And once again, we come to a pas passage where a meal is served, and during that meal we get a, a greater glimpse at the breadth and the depth of the Gospel of Jesus of Nazareth. So as we come to this passage, uh, will you pray with me one more time and ask for God's presence? Jesus, we do ask now that you would meet with us in this place, however... We have come into this facility, whether we come with celebratory hearts, enthusiasm, strong faith, or whether we come doubting and perhaps even hurting and troubled and heavy hearts, or anywhere in between, or a, com or a, a, a combination of all of it. Whatever the case, Jesus now convince us that it is not an accident that we are here now that you actually have something to speak to us. So do that now by the power of your Holy Spirit, Jesus, we pray for your sake. Amen. Well, of, of all the ways... Is that better? Apostle John might actually be accused here of recounting and writing an event in an anticlimactic manner here in chapter 13. John has a very strong start in this passage. John starts by giving us two details that flashback to previous moments that we've actually looked at in this mini-series where something dramatic took place. He mentions here that it's the time of the Passover and that Jesus's hour had now come. Last week we looked at a passage in John 6 where John mentions the Passover and then we see a dramatic miraculous supernatural intervention of Jesus feeding thousands of people with simply a couple of five loaves and a couple of fish after he mentions the Passover. Two weeks ago, looking at the wedding of Cana, we were first introduced to this idea of Jesus' hour, and same thing. We see something very dramatic happen at the end of that passage. So John is flashing back to those moments here by both mentioning the Passover, mentioning that Jesus' hour now has actually come. So John's off to a good start as a storyteller. John thickens the plot even further when he then adds a very warm-hearted commentary on the plot thus far of the story that he's telling about Jesus of Nazareth. At the end of verse 1, he writes, Jesus, now having loved his own who were in the world, loved them 
to the end. This is quite a, an intimate and affectionate detail to add here. And it's even more pronounced in the original Greek. You see, the word translated here for end in our English Bibles doesn't quite do full justice to the Greek word that John uses here, which is telos. When John says he loved them to the end, to the telos, he's not simply saying there was never a moment in all of Jesus' time with his disciples that he did not love them. He is saying that, but he's saying a whole lot more than that. The word telos in its full sense means not simply to the end, but to perfection. <laughs> Whole, complete, uttermost. Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, loved them to the uttermost. It's almost as if John is saying, that the love that Jesus had towards his disciples, his closest friends, was more fully and perfectly exhibited here over all their previous time together. John is saying, if you thought <laughs> you had seen Jesus demonstrate and express his love towards his disciples before, hold my beer. <laughs> Watch this. For John, there's nothing more that Jesus could have done to demonstrate and express the profound love that he had for his closest friends and his disciples than what he's about to do. So John has pulled us in. He's engaged our minds. He's engaged our imaginations. He's engaged our hearts, but he's not building up the tension yet. For he next adds, during supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. In other words, John is here inserting the mention of Jesus' chief antagonist. Further thickening the plot line. And so, so far, we have literary allusions and flashbacks to what has already come in his story. We have commentary on this intimate relationship between the protagonist, Jesus, and his friends. We have the antagonist now in the picture on the scene. All the literary ingredients are present to cause us to expect that some kind of dramatic, thrilling twist is right around the corner. And that's when the narrative crescendo John has had us on rises to its highest and ultimate peak. For continuing in verse 3, John adds, Now Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and he was going back to God, rose from supper. Now, certainly that which Jesus knows about who he is and what he has accomplished and what he is about to accomplish is on a cosmic redemptive scale. But this bit of information that John offers here is comparable to an author describing the height and epitome of the life and career of the protagonist of a story. When someone reaches the epitome of their career, the height, whether in a script or in real life, don't we at that moment expect it to be a time that they kind of start to coast? To kind of simply relish the fact that they've arrived, they've done it. They've proven to the world 
they can do it. That at that point in their career, it's time for them to sit back and kind of bask in their success. I mean, truly, fully knowing who you are, having demonstrated that by your great accomplishment, that means it's time to celebrate your success. It's time for others to give you the respect that you were due. This would be that moment for Jesus, according to John. So what will Jesus do with that moment? As he rises from supper, will he give some kind of speech? Maybe he will assign each of his disciples to some responsibility under his leadership and authority. Perhaps he will perform another amazing supernatural miracle and sign of his divine power and status. This should be good. Actually, the moment seems quite anticlimactic. Far from there being any kind of literary fireworks here, if there is any drama here at all, it is the absolutely unexpected thing that Jesus does next. You see, Jesus' script is a bit different than we would expect from someone who has professionally arrived and accomplished what he was out to do in their career. Because apparently the defining moment of Jesus' work and of Jesus' mission will be a lot different. John writes, Jesus then rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, took a towel, tied it around his waist, then poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. That's it? <laughs> That's the next act in your script, John. <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth washing the dirty, grimy feet of his disciples and friends. <laughs> to say that this is an unconventional act by Jesus would be an understatement. <laughs> think, think for a moment of a very famous person or a, a celebrity, maybe a world leader even royalty, that you would be ecstatic just to meet. Maybe even to get close enough to shake their hand. Now, I know it's far-fetched, but, but keep it going. Imagine a little further. Imagine that that person actually agrees to come to your house and share a meal with you at your dinner table. <laughs> and further imagine if after their arrival, you had all just sat down to dinner, when you hear this rustling in the kitchen and you get up to go see what's going on and your dog has gotten into the trash can, dumped it over, and now you have grease and muck and trash strewn out all over your kitchen floor and into the other rooms of your house. And then to your utter astonishment, you turn around and your celebrity royal guest has picked up an apron grabbed a broom and a mop and a rag and is now on the floor cleaning up this mess. You would likely be aghast. Now, as startling as that scenario is, it's actually still not even close to the absurdity as to what is happening here in John 13. In the average home of a dinner host at this time, there would likely have been a pot or a jar of water at the front door. There would have likely also been a servant present at this meal whose job it would have been 
to wash the feet of these guests as they entered before they reclined at the table. And you can imagine how dirty people's feet must have been walking around in non-asphalt, non-paved roadways, in open-toed sandals, if they had anything on their feet at all, when you have all sorts of animals wandering freely around and there's no modern plumbing or sanitation. You get the picture. And so this is not a job that the host of a meal would ever do himself. More than that, a teacher, a rabbi, would certainly never even consider doing this for his students. In fact, according to Jewish law itself, a Jewish slave was not even permitted to do this. This was the lowliest of tasks for anyone to ever have to possibly perform. And so for Jesus, the master, the rabbi, the one these disciples call Lord, to get on his knees, take on the role of a humble servant, would have been an immensely intimate and lowly gesture to offer to his disciples. Apparently, Jesus is not your average teacher. <laughs> For Jesus to know the full acknowledgement and pleasure of his heavenly Father, as John said, to fully know his Father's calling, to fully understand his place and his role in the cosmic redemptive plan of the triune God, rather than being a time of some extraordinary deed, becomes the time and opportunity to humble himself and to sacrificially serve those he loved dearly. It was an opportunity for him to love his own to the end, to the uttermost. Jesus demonstrates his profound love for these disciples by taking on a task that no one else was prepared nor willing to do for them. But the depth of his love is demonstrated not simply because of the lowly nature of the act, as significant as that is. Remember the context of what is soon about to happen as well when Jesus does this. Remember, Jesus, John's told us, knows that his hour has finally come. He is literally only a matter of hours away from being unjustly tried, wrongfully beaten, tortured, mocked, and then eventually brutally killed and crucified on the cross. That's what's just moments ahead of him. And you know how hard it is <laughs> as a human being to be thinking about anybody else other than yourself when you're in pain. <laughs> when your heart is full of sorrow, it is not normal in the human capacity to have any room in one's consciousness for the care and concern of others when you yourself are experiencing or facing intense suffering. Jesus knows full well what he's about to face, and yet he does this. <laughs> Even as Jesus faces the darkest agony and sorrow anyone could possibly imagine, loving and serving his closest friends to the end, loving them to the uttermost, remained his priority. But also consider whose feet he's washing. Remember who's at this table 
reclining, having dinner together at this table. Every one of these disciples is going to abandon him in a few hours and then for a few days. One is going to flat out betray him and make a decent profit over that betrayal. His closest friend of all of these sitting here at the table is going to vehemently deny even knowing him. And yet, and yet, Jesus loves them to the end, to the uttermost. Even then, even then. We next read <laughs> that this makes, all of this, makes Peter, as it would make you and me, <laughs> extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> Verse 6. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? <laughs> Peter feels what most of us feel when others offer and engage in some kind of act of service towards us. That really puts them out, actually costs them something. That is hard for us to receive and accept. We might be able to handle a small gesture of kindness, from time to time, but like Peter, when the act is a bit too much for our comfort level to allow someone else to serve us in such a humble and extravagant and sacrificial way, we object. <laughs> because, that's, because it's actually a very vulnerable thing to be on the receiving end of such an act of humble service and sacrifice and love. And often our pride will simply refuse to accept it. <laughs> and so we will inevitably respond awkwardly with something like, oh, that's not necessary. <laughs> you don't have to do that. You're not going to wash my feet, are you? <laughs> and Jesus actually at first empathizes with this posture of Peter. And he offers them, you, you do not yet, Peter, you do not yet understand. But afterward, there's coming time when you will understand. You see, this act of loving his disciples to the end in this manner was a lowly, intimate, loving act of servitude and sacrifice all on its own. But it was actually symbolic of and pointing forward to an even greater, lowly, intimate, loving act of servitude and sacrifice that Jesus was about to undergo for those he loved on the cross. An act that was absolutely necessary for them and for us, however. And so Peter objects a second time. No, <laughs> you will never wash my feet. And Jesus then continues subtly, subtle rebuke. Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. The truth is, there's no way to come to genuine faith in Jesus Christ without receiving his humble act of servanthood love that he goes through on the cross for you and for me. That's how Jesus loves his own. When Jesus loves us to the uttermost, it is so extravagant, so sacrificial, that it is actually a direct challenge and threat 
to your pride and to my pride. <laughs> you see, the Bible makes the claim that all of our misdeeds, our rebellion, our sin, doesn't simply disrupt and cause friction within ourselves and with other human beings around us. It actually causes us to be spiritually unclean. This is how the Bible describes our moral and spiritual disposition in the presence of a holy God. And the only way possible for us to be clean, to be made able to dwell in and experience the presence of this holy God is for Jesus himself to be the one to actually wash us. And he does this willingly, freely, to the uttermost on the cross for your behalf and for mine, shedding his blood as a way to cover and atone for our uncleanness. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he describes this, as he's overwhelmed with Jesus's sacrificial love for his people when he says in Philippians 4, Jesus, though he enjoyed the very nature of God, did not count equality with God something to cling to. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus offering himself in our place by his death is a death blow not only to our own sin and its consequences, but it's a death blow even to our pride and our ego. But that's necessary <laughs> because without the pride of ours being not only threatened, but actually crushed, we will never find ourselves in a place to actually follow Jesus into the places he calls us to as his disciples. Next in this passage, in verse 12, it says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. This is Jesus' charge to his disciples and even to us as his followers today to res pres, to build and be the type of community where love is extravagantly and sacrificially offered to one another. Jesus will later add in this chapter, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And the only way to have this kind of servant loving posture towards one another is to have and to know and to bask in deep down the reality that you know who you are and more importantly whose you are and even more importantly fully grasping the way he has fully loved you to the uttermost. Res Pres, we live in a time when our society is moving away from any kind of organized religion in general and Christianity in particular at a breakneck speed. 
the church, that institution that once was literally at the center of public life, both geographically and philosophically, is now relegated to the sidelines of public discourse and to the outskirts of town, if not outright simply dismissed. May I suggest to you, as my time here winds down, that what our culture needs from us as Jesus' followers right now, what Madison needs right now, is not another religious entity demanding it have its place in society to be respected and to be taken seriously, but rather a church of followers of Jesus who have laid egos aside because they are convinced more and more on a regular daily basis that their approval and their acceptance and their identity is established in the sacrificial work that their Savior and their Redeemer and their Lord humbly and willingly underwent to show forth his love to the uttermost. And as knowing recipients of such love are then enabled to turn around and show forth that extravagant and generous and sacrificial ways to those around them. That would be a gift to the culture around us. And so only by being fully certain, by faith, that that is the type of extravagant love that you and I are a direct recipient of through and by Jesus Christ, will we have the capacity to turn around and love those who are different, Love those who will even oppose us, who might even betray us. (laughs) Whether they are among us in our close spiritual family community or whether they're among us at the places we work or live next door to us in our neighborhoods. The only way that type of love is possible is to constantly be reminding ourselves that the Savior and Lord and Redeemer that we serve, that we follow, is the one who went out of his way to extravagantly demonstrate his love to us, to the uttermost, by laying down his life for us. As Stuart Townend says, Behold, the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Of course, knowing the ways that we still, as his followers, would still fail, he still died for us. The Bible says, even while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And therefore, with Stuart Town, and we can say boldly, I will therefore not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain? <laughs> From his reward, I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Res Perez, build, continue to build on that foundation. May that be the fuel. May that be the impetus for how you love one another and for how you love Madison. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we, when we do <clears throat> have those moments of clarity of 
of the extravagant love, both of you as the Father sending your Son and the extravagant self-sacrificial love of our Savior Jesus. (laughs) It's all we can do to ask the question, why should we gain? Why should I gain from his reward? There is no answer. This I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. May that be the underlining underlying motive within our hearts, within our souls, within our minds on a regular basis. As we follow you, Jesus, follow your footsteps into loving one another, both within our community as a church and our community as a city. Go before us, Jesus. Thank you for your amazing, amazing love. Jesus, we pray this for your sake. Amen.